337 million Europeans can't be wrong. 1.1 trillion euros in circulation can't be wrong. Can't be wrong. Or can they? Where did they come from? That's the first question we have to answer. This is the first of two episodes on the story of the euro. This week's episode is going to be how the euro, which for those of you who are living in a hole is, is the currency of most of Europe, how the euro came about. Why did it come about? And what did people think it was going to bring that was better than the system of uh, all the different currencies before? Um, and just and so you don't miss the second episode, which will be next week, where we will talk about some of the challenges that emerged with the euro. And we'll talk about the uh, the sovereign debt crisis. Um, oh, sounds exciting. It is. Um, so you, just so you don't, you don't miss it, what you need to do is subscribe to our podcast, which you can do by just pressing a button on on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. So today on a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank, we're going to tell the story of the euro and what a story it is. And we have two experts on the euro and its story. Right here, we have Laurent Morin, who is a senior economist at the EIB and also used to work at the European Central Bank, which will be part of the story of the euro. Um, he's one of the luckiest people that we've had on this show because he happens to be from the beautiful town of Nîmes in the south of France, which I think is one of my favorite places that I've, I've visited. What was it like to grow up in Nîmes? It was very good, sunny, with the sea close by, and it was... Uh a beautiful uh, period for me before studying in Paris. Oh, to go from Nîmes to Paris. Wow, you really, uh, you've really had a tough time, haven't you? That's right. <laughs> Indeed. And we've also got here Aldo Romani, who fans of this podcast will remember from the Green Bonds episode, one of our biggest hits. Uh, he's a managerial advisor in the Euro division of uh, the bank's capital markets area. And I remember when we, were t when we were on the Green Bonds episode, Aldo, which I encourage all our listeners to go back and, and check out because it's, a, it's fascinating. You were telling us about how you, at that time you were coming to work on a longboard, which is kind of a big skateboard. And I've seen you riding that. Are you still coming to work on a, a longboard these days? I do, but um, in fact, uh, I also use another locomotive uh, device, which is called Backfits. Mm. It's... Um, a big bike with a wooden box in front, which is very useful to carry books, to carry PCs, kids, and vegetables, uh, depending on the circumstances. Aha, uh -huh. okay. Uh -huh. But it's not so good for listening to podcasts. You, we should tell everyone, no listening uh, to other devices when you're riding your bike. That's a dangerous way to travel. Or your longboard. Or your longboard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I've noticed, actually, when you're going around town that you do your own singing. When you're uh, when you're on there, I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that you do, but I've heard you go past me on your bike and you're you're singing. So that's you don't need the podcast. Let's start with you, Aldo. the The story of the euro does that begin a long time ago? What's what's the start of the story? Well, um, you know, the Treaty of Rome, uh, 1958, had. Uh, a main object in the free circulation of goods and uh, production factors 
within a common market. In the second half of the 60s, however, a number of events uh, materialized that endangered this project. The collapse of uh, the post-war uh, monetary, international monetary system, the emergence of uh, new uh, international reserve currencies, large liquidity surpluses, uh, and connected with all this, you know, higher um, uh, and increasing uh, international financial intermediation and exchange rate volatility. Mm. So uh, the European masters started to think that uh, it was important to pay more attention to the coordination of economic and monetary policies um, to uh, achieve uh, exchange rate uh, stability. And uh, the institutional response to this challenge was indeed the project of European Economic and Monetary Union, which does not start with the Maastricht Treaty, but has its uh, original uh, seed in the Vienna Report of 1970. Uh, you should also know that the first uh, issue of uh, the EAB was back in, 19, in a common currency, was in 1973, in fact. The currency was called Yurko at the time. Yurko. Yurko. It was a basket of nine uh, uh, European currencies. And the bank, uh, already at that time, started to experiment with this uh, idea in the capital markets, in this way also promoting and amplifying perception uh, of this idea. I so think, that it would be something more stable yeah. than having, all the, having in a number of investments in lots of different currencies which could go up and down all the time? Indeed. If you have different currencies uh, this, uh, and that, uh, whose uh, value fluctuates uh, against each other, then you have a volatility that is not uh, uh, very well received by those that have to trade and product. And this is uh, the background to this whole uh, idea that started so long uh, I ago. I think it's fair to say that the euro is a cause and the consequence of the trade integration process within the European Union. It's a, a process that we have seen since the end of the Second World War, when the politicians decided to integrate further Europe. And the, the need to have a current co common currency was felt stronger at the time when trade was becoming more globalized, more internalized within the European Union. So it's at the same time a consequence of the euro as much as a cause of further trade integration within the European Union. Because in it's practical terms, if, if I was, if I was uh, producing something in Germany and I was selling this to, to Italy, and if the, the, the currency rates fluctuated all the time, then the demand, uh, the demand would fluctuate along with that. Is that right? And that would kind yeah. of make it very difficult for me to plan, make it, for, make it very difficult for the buyers to know how much of my stuff they would want. And they would, uh, that, that's, what, that's what would hinder trade. Indeed, that... indeed. I think one of the idea, one of the reasons for creating the euro was to prevent exporters from the exchange rate volatility risk. The fact that the currency price move mm -hmm. when you don't have the same currency. Mm -hmm. And this hamper, this, uh, this is detrimental to trade activity, external trade activity. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to suffer a loss in case the exchange rate appreciate and you export while pricing your goods on the export market. Mm -hmm. So it's why you needed a, a, a common currency to protect trade activity, cross-border trade activity within the monetary union from this exchange rate volatility. And the, the need for it became even stronger at the occasion of the exchange rate crisis at the beginning of the 90s, 92, 93, if I remember correctly, when you saw very sharp adjustment in exchange rate across the European Union. Before we talk more about the history, the historic part, I just wanted to ask, is there a similar 
trend happening somewhere else in the world right now where 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 countries who are geographically closely aligned they're they're close together there's a lot of trade going on and they feel that you know maybe they should be thinking of a common currency to alleviate the similar kinds of problems that that uh, were present in euro is that so is that being talked about or discussed in I don't know Asia for example Well, I think there are some economists who say that this would be an optimal policy to develop the common currency in South America, in Asian countries. But you have to bear in mind that you also need the political support and you need uh, to share the same values. And I think in Europe, we are pretty much advanced in terms of sharing the same political value, democratic value. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, something you need before going into a common currency. And I'm not sure the, the other part of the world are already at this stage of sharing so much the same political and social values. So it seems like a lot of people make the uh, the comparison with actually with the United States dollar, actually that you have one political unity there, but a lot of very disparate kinds of localized economies. Is that a fair comparison? I think it's a very good illustration of the the length of the, the setup of the, uh, the American monetary system with the creation of the Fed was a long story. And this is a good example of the, of the steps we have to move forward in order to create a fully integrated monetary union with a fully integrated capital market union and a better integrated political system within the European Union. It took a lot of time in the US and I think it's a good example, a good illustration. Given the fact that the U.S. is the fully is the same country with the same political system, but it, it, the U.S. did not reach this point so quickly. It took 30 years, 30, 40 years to reach the situation that the U.S. Uh, know now since the the 20s or the beginning of the 20th century. Ah, so it's a very long Euro process. Is not over yet either. Uh, not at all. It's an ongoing process. Should we go back to and 1973, Aldo? Yes, and, but and I just wanted to add uh, a postil to what um, uh, what was uh, Laurence just said, because in fact, if you look uh, at uh, you know the work of Alexander Hamilton back in 1790 around, mm -hmm. he really uh, also addressed one crucial aspect of all this, which is the creation of a single uh, debt in the, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the area. And uh, at the time, he had to convince uh, some countries that uh, were uh, more advanced in uh, repaying uh, a debt that uh, derived from uh, the war, um, that it was opportune to bring all the people together and create uh, a new uh, asset, safe asset uh, in, that, uh, in that world. If you look at something, at some of the things he wrote at the time, uh, you will find uh, almost a one-to-one -one application to today's uh, situation in uh, Europe. Back to 1973, this story continues. Actually, the first step forward uh, was indeed, uh, or a very important step uh, towards uh, um, the euro, was the creation of EQ. Uh, of uh, the European Currency Unit. And uh, uh, here I would like also to highlight once again that the EIB um, continued that work that it had started with the first Euro issue. In 1981, the, um, uh, the, the, the bank issued the first uh, uh, AQ-denominated uh, bond, a 40 million transaction, can mm. you imagine, uh, with uh, a seven-year maturity. Uh, it was the second just after the first issue in AQ uh, by Belgium. Hmm. And just to give you an idea of the progress that we have seen since, because capital markets reflect this, uh, 40 million, seven year in 
1981. In 2005, the bank issued its first euro 5 billion, 2037, a 32-year benchmark that gives you the measure of the progress that we have seen in between. Hmm. The EQ was the European currency unit. Why didn't they just take the EQ, the European currency unit, because and say that's our currency because now? Because that let's... was not a currency. That was not a currency. Is it what we would now call a virtual currency? Uh, no, it was a, a you know a system of uh, a fixed but uh, re re revisable. Uh, I think it was a benchmark uh, uh, compared to which you were pricing the currency of the of the of the country within it the was monetary a union. Basket ah. currency. It was a yeah. reference value which was derived from the. Mm -hmm. And it was a system also to provide national monetary authorities with uh, an additional, with, with, with a credibility gain in the fight of inflation locally. Italy is the best example for this, where you had, uh, you know, a high level of public debt and uh, the need not to address this via inflation. Yeah? So uh, it was a system that effectively collapsed in 1992. And uh, this led to those, uh, you know, vibrant uh, crises uh, mm -hmm. that uh, effectively led to the idea that it was not sufficient. And the only way to get forward was really to have a single currency. So that yeah. takes us to 1992, which was when we had the Maastricht Treaty. And no, I think what he was referring to is more the exchange rate crisis, where, where you saw the Swedish krona leaving the, the, the range of variation of the exchange rate. The British pound also leaving, the Italian lira being pretty much, I think it was 10 to 20 percent depreciated. So you saw this sharp adjustment and politicians push forward on the agenda the, the need for a real actual currency shared by all the members of the euro. But now there are many economists who say that countries need to have the ability to, to adjust uh, sharply, uh, if necessary, to economic conditions in their specific country, basically to be able to devalue their currency uh, when necessary. And that's one of the challenges that having having euro, having a joint currency um, comes with is that you can't really do anything monetarily in, in one specific euro country without affecting everyone else. No, the idea that you can regain competitiveness through exchange rate depreciation, I think, is an old idea. But you have to balance the... So it's, it's true what you said. If you depreciate your currency, then you have the opportunity to export more and to adjust your economy and to have faster growth maybe in your economy. But at the same time, you have also to balance this positive impact with the cost of having exchange rate variation variation and the cost of having a risk priced by foreign investors so they know that your exchange rate can move a lot when you don't anchor with uh, within a big monetary union so they don't have they have to price this risk the risk of investing in your currency so on the one hand you have the opportunity of having more leeway more flexibility to change the currency to depreciate and to restore competitiveness on the other hand you have the cost of losing trade because of uncertainty and losing the opportunity to attract foreign investors and i think the idea of euro was precisely to choose integration to foster exchange rate of capital as well as exchange of trade within the union but the idea that comes with the euro and, and of kind of harmonizing this is that uh, that w it seems it seems to be the idea is that uh, in the end we should all kind of converge to a equilibrium of of prices of wages of production costs of everything should be kind of equal in 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 the eurozone is that right 
not entirely. Not entirely. I think what people have forgot at the earlier stage of the euro was that in fact the currency was was coming along a process of integration of real economic integration. Okay, so you can go, you cannot depart in in many economic direction when you belong to the same currency area precisely because you don't have any more this possibility to manipulate your exchange rate. So, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean for it doesn't mean that you have to be fully identical everywhere in all the dimensions. You can still have diversity, but there are parts of the economic landscape which have to be homogenized within the monetary union. And I think this is the ongoing political discussions currently taking place in Europe. Whether we should, uh, in which direction, up to which point, we should move forward, move forward and further integrate, homogenize labor law, pensions, Uh, competition policy, tax rates, yeah. tax rates corporate tax rates, saving uh, fiscality on the saving placement. Mm -hmm. well, let's go to uh, 2002 is when the euro actually entered circulation. What sort of impact did that have on, on the economies of Europe? Well, I think that there is one aspect that needs to be highlighted, which is uh, indeed the convergence of interest rates, uh, you know, towards lower level uh, and uh, you know, constant reduction of uh, spreads between uh, um, the interest rate paid by uh, some countries vis-a-vis -vis others uh, in uh, monetary union, which was uh, one important uh, also objective of uh, monetary union itself and an enormous opportunity in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the proper management of uh, a ballooning public debt in a number of uh, countries. You can so say Italy. Well, in Italy and other countries as well, of course. But that, but that was not just because they were in the euro. It's, to be in the euro, they had to fulfill certain criteria. Is, is that right? Which, which then meant that investors said, okay, well, this, is, this is safer. Yes. Well, the euro is not, you know, the, the concept of a currency is not a mechanic one. You have certain functions, you have the traditional functions of uh, medium of exchange, of, uh, of a unit of account and a store of value. Uh, but uh, effectively, a currency is also expression of the underlying uh, infrastructure, so to speak, which is infrastructure in economic terms. It is infrastructure in terms of uh, capital markets and the means uh, that uh, they have to uh, really, uh, uh, you know, perform their uh, function. So, uh, as uh, you were saying before, in fact, having a single currency also permits to unveil a number of. Uh, Uh, inefficiencies that separate markets within the currency area and uh, stimulate improvement in these areas. If you just, mm -hmm. um, if, I, if I may uh, provide you with an example, um, in, uh, in my uh, direct area of, uh, of responsibility, which is capital markets, uh, the, uh, an important function or an important event that accompanied Uh, the development of, uh, of this uh, currency-related idea is the development of an infrastructure of clearing and settlement in Europe that has improved enormously um, the uh, conditions for the practical exchange of bonds throughout, uh, the, uh, throughout Europe, reducing cost and also eliminating, um, uh, you know, uh, the uh, margins that a number of people were Um, basically exploiting. So from that point of view, uh, the progress that we have also witnessed in, in capital markets uh, um, since the beginning of the 70s is also the result of this uh, um, 
uh, improved transparency and improved accountability and improved infrastructure underlying the currency itself. I think just to rebound on what Aldo said, you, the euro uh, trigger a decrease in the borrowing cost because the euro was from the start a very credible currency, a strong currency, because it was partly based on the credibility of the Bundesbank and the previous Deutschmark. So the euro enable, enable people to invest at lower cost. And at the same time, the euro foster market integration, like trading platforms, and therefore reduce transaction cost for trade, for trading goods, as well as for trade in capital flows for cross-border financial transaction. So, and these two reduction in the borrowing cost and in the transaction cost enable further integration, more trade flows, more capital within Europe, more opportunities to invest, and this was up to the crisis. This is a challenge, of course, because also competition increases. If uh, you take the experience of the EIB, for example, in the capital markets, all of a sudden you were in direct uh, you know, competition with a number of uh, different uh, sovereign issuers in the same currency area. Um, the, the reduction in spreads eliminated a number of arbitrage opportunities, opportunities that the bank had to find itself uh, uh, you know, on better terms uh, in, in, in the various currencies. But this, I think, brings also to expression a very, very essential component of the European idea that uh, an Italian philosopher, uh, Vittorio Mathieu, has described as uh, adventure. Uh, adventure in the sense, in the etymological sense of you moving voluntarily towards the future, towards the things add, that come to you from the future in a proactive and structured way. And just to give you an example, uh, in the transition from the AQ to the Euro, there was a period between 1995, uh, when the Madrid Council adopted the framework for uh, monetary uh, union, and the actual production of the legislative uh, aspects that were required to eliminate uncertainty, where effectively the Euro was a no man's land. What did the uh, EIB do? It just didn't uh, step back and waited. It developed a strategy which, which, which we called uh, uh, Euro tributaries uh, that consisted in issuing in individual currencies mm -hmm. uh, bonds that had the same coupon and a, the, exactly the same documentation in order to merge these different issues into individual issues of larger liquidity, which was becoming more and more important for investors, immediately at the beginning of the uh, uh, of uh, monetary union. Mm. So turning you know, necessity into virtue and, uh, and uh, adapting, uh, uh, I think, uh, brings to, 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 to voice the fact that every challenge entails an opportunity. I'd like to, Laurent, ask you about one of the benefits that I remember people talking about a lot and let's, uh, when this happened, so 2002 and just before, and let's remember that some of our listeners might be students, so they might not have been uh, around to see their money change over at that time. They might not have had any money back then. No, but they might have done what my children have done, which is they. I have a, a little pot of old coins and notes uh, at home, you know, that I just happen to have sitting around. I never got to spend them or change them because they were from all sorts of different. I got some little Belgian franc coins in there. I've got some uh, beautiful-looking old lira notes from Italy and so on. 
and my children love to look at them and they love to play with them, but I suppose we could say that back before the Euro, if I was a company, I would effectively have like a pot just like that, except it'd be much bigger and it'd be much more complicated for me to figure out how to not lose money mm -hmm. through that. I couldn't just give it to my kids to play with. That's one of the benefits, right? That there's no longer that pot with all kinds of Yeah, I think that's a bit an anecdotal, but it's what you see the image of what you don't see in a way. You don't see the reduction in transaction costs. You don't see the increased liquidity in financial market, the bigger investment opportunities for investors. But you see the fact that you done now, if you go to Germany or to France or to Italy, you don't have to change the currency. You can price all the goods symmetrically, transparently across the monetary union. So these are the, you can travel easily without changing your, your currency. This is, this is the, what people see most. But this is also what corporations see. So with the increased competition, of course, which goes with it. But the fact that they can access a whole market without changing, without having to care about the currency valuation, the changing the currency, which has a cost, that they can publicize the price of their goods easily, transparently across the union. So in terms of benefits for the, the, the traveler and for the... It, it's evident, but for the corporations and even more for the financial operator, financial investors, the, the benefits are huge. They are linked to, again, I come back to history, decline in transaction costs, improve, uh, improve confidence, reduction in risk. And also you have to bear in mind that the euro was settled around a very clear poly monetary policy mandate, which is of keeping inflation low at the level of close to but below 2%. And this is something that the euro brought to many European countries, which had the habit of having high inflation rate. And we know that inflation is not good for economic activity. You need some, some degree of inflation to maintain the system, but you don't need high inflation. Aldo and Laurent, thank you so much. That's the, uh, the first episode of the story of the euro here on a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank. Tune in next week to use a nice old-fashioned phrase, uh, to episode two, where things are going to go wrong, or are they? Mm. The sovereign debt crisis, which is you know one of my favorite crises of the last 20 years. We're going to go into that, how it happened, what it meant for the euro, and what it means for the future, what lessons were learned, and how is that going to change the way the euro uh, exists in the future. So tune in for that one. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere else you can listen to them. Uh, and then you'll get every episode of a Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank that you could possibly want. We've got tons. In the meantime, you can be in touch with Alar. At Alar Tankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R -L -L -E on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at E-I-B-M-A-T-T. E -I -B and I can't wait to hear what your favorite currency was before the euro. You've got to tell us that so that we can give you a little shout out on the air.